If you have a Bible, if you want to turn back to John 8. Started on John 8 and I got sidetracked a couple Sundays, but I want to get back into it. And we'll pray first. Father, I ask you, Lord, that uh, you'll be here with us, open in our hearts, and help us to understand you more fully in the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace that you've given us through him. And I thank you that you'll do that for us today in Jesus' name. John 8, beginning in verse 12, it says, we'll read through verse 20. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the Pharisees therefore said to him, Will you bear witness of yourself, and your witness is not true? And Jesus answered and said to them, Well, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. He says, I judge no one, and yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. So even though we read those first 20 verses, we're pretty much going to look at verse 12 today. To understand the significance of, of that statement there, that is the gospel in a condensed form right there. And there's several statements like that you'll find through the New Testament where we have the gospel in a condensed form. And that's what it is in verse 12 where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, he says, but will have the light of life. To have a clear understanding of what he's talking about, we have to look at the context briefly. But John chapters 7 and 8 are both taking place during what is known to Israel as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Jerusalem was not a large city back then. It wasn't a booming metropolis by any means. But when they would have these feasts, particularly this feast, it was flooded with people. Hundreds of thousands of people at times would be there. So if you can imagine it, it would be like being down at Thunder over Louisville, just hundreds of thousands of people, except they're in a more condensed area. So it had been a loud, noisy gathering, and there would have been this air of expectation there. What you have happening here is you've got these people coming from all over Israel, and most of them are from little villages and little towns, and they're worshiping in that context of just a few people, not a whole lot of people. But here they are coming to Jerusalem, hundreds and thousands of them gathered together at the temple to worship the God of heaven, and it's really a foretaste of heaven for them in that sense, because you had this great multitude gathering, praising, singing, and worshiping the Lord. So it's kind of like, you know, we have our little meetings here, and, you know, back when they used to have the Indianapolis seminar and everybody would go, you'd have, I don't know how many people were there, 1,500? Is that too many? It'd be a lot, 1,500, 2,000, 1,000, whatever. It's a lot more than I was used to the little house meeting I had in Columbus. And I mean, you get all those people together worshiping. There was just an excitement there. There was just, it was pretty neat, wasn't it? I love the praises. They were just great. Just really entering. So that's kind of gives you an idea what this would have been like. So what they're doing in this Feast of Tabernacles is they're celebrating God's goodness to Israel during the Exodus. And one of the ceremonies, which is what's happening here in John 8, one of the ceremonies was what was called the illumination of the temple. And this took place in what was known as the court of the women. And this is where the treasury was. 
you don't have to look, but back in verse 20, the last verse we read, that's where Jesus was talking to him. It said in the court of the treasury. But what happened each night for a week during this festival, they would have these four golden oil-fed lamps, and they were huge. They were 75 feet high, and they towered above the temple. And they would light those four golden lamps. When they were lit, they were so bright that it illumined the entire city of Jerusalem. I mean, it had to be a sight to behold. And this was like a real joyous celebration. And so the people, they held these little handheld torches, and they would have those along with these huge lights that were going on. <laughs> and they would be dancing and singing. And the Levites on the steps that led out of the courtyard, they would be standing on those steps with instruments playing. And it would just be a time of joyous celebration, singing, dancing. And it would go on until dawn in the light every night of that. One of the biggest of the lights or one of the four they would leave unlit until the last day and that was because there was a promise that the Messiah was coming. It was a reminder to these people not only that he had led them by a light and guided their paths through the wilderness but also that one day he promised light would come back to Israel and it would renew their glory. It was going to release them from the bondage they were in and it was also going to restore their joy. And that was what this all was pointing to. You know, Zechariah, speaking of this coming Messiah, the father of John the Baptist, he prophesied this after John was born. He said, and you child will be called. So we're talking about light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And Zechariah prophesied to John, he said, You child will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace." John the Baptist, for those that were listening, he has prophesied that that Messiah had come and God had brought light back to his nation, back to Israel. You got to picture this. Here is Jesus. He came halfway through the, the temple. Remember, his brothers went and he goes, I'd stop my time. I'll be up there. And he came about halfway through this festival, halfway through the week. So here it's probably at the end of the week. And here is Jesus standing where these four great lamps are burning, more than likely. And he's announcing with all of this light, and they're celebrating light, and God's light, and he is saying out loud to the people, I am the light of the world. And hearing him say that, it would have shocked the Pharisees. They'd have been shocked. They were like, he is saying, I am the light. They knew the Old Testament well, and they knew the Old Testament had references to the Lord being light. Psalm 27, 1, for instance, says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Or Psalm 36, 9 says, How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings, for with you is the fountain of life. And in your light, in your light, O Lord, we see light. And on, there's many other scripture references to God being light. So they knew the Jews, and especially the Pharisees, they all knew Genesis. God was the source of light. God was not only physical, but also spiritual. And Jesus wasn't just claiming to be a light. He is saying, I am the light, the light. 
And they wouldn't have missed that, that he's claiming that at the time that they're celebrating this light that led Israel and guided them and directed them because he's saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me, he's alluding to that, isn't he? To that Exodus journey and pointing to that pillar of light. And they're saying, hey, what was that pillar of light? You know, I heard a man say this. I, I never thought about this, but, he, you know, we think of the cloudy pillar that it was shielding the sun. It probably had a brightness about it because the Shekinah glory, when it would appear in the temple, there was always that Shekinah glory or light to it. Yeah, it would have shielded them, but it was a light, a continual light. That would make sense, wouldn't it? God's giving them a continual light during the day and at night, the fiery pillar. He's there. It's his presence. And also, not only that is Jesus saying he's the light. He's using God's name, the I am again. I am the bread of life. And he's saying here, I am the light of the world. That's that ego a me. And what's interesting is this discourse that begins here in verse 12 that he's having with them. At the beginning of that, he says, I am the light of the world. And then at the end of the chapter, which we will get to eventually, in verse 58, he once again says, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what does he say? Before Abraham was, I am. Everything he is saying in between those two I am statements, because he's claiming to be God and doing that, he's forcing the Jews and also anyone that's reading this, from here on out. But he's forcing those Jews to come to terms to who he is. They have to come to terms with who he's saying he is and how he relates to God. And then how are we going to relate to him? And we'll talk about that more next time because he's saying, if you don't believe in me, you will die in your sins. Tells him that three times. When Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, he's making a claim that only God could make. And in doing that, saying, I am the light of the world, he's making Christianity totally unique, isn't he? Totally unique in an exclusive religion. And whether you like it or not, we are not an inclusive religion. We are an exclusive religion. We are saying, this is the way. There is no other way to heaven, to God, to know God. No other way. You know, other religions and other religious leaders will say, I have found truth and try to follow it. You try to follow it. And Jesus says, I am the truth and the light. And you must not follow it. But he doesn't say follow it like it's a something. He's saying you must follow whom? He says, you've got to follow me. I'm not showing you some way. I'm not telling you about some way. He's saying, I am me. I am the way. Other religious leaders will say, I've discovered some light, and here it is. And I've read their books, some of their books, those philosophers, Aristotle. Those guys had some light, but they didn't have enough light to get you out of darkness. Their light would take you so far and just leave you there, leave you hanging with questions about eternity and other things. But Jesus doesn't say, I found some light, and here it is. He says, I am the light, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will not walk in darkness. And other religions will say, I will try to help you find your way to God. And like I said, Jesus says, I am the way. And the only way that you are going to know who God is, is how? He's saying it is through me. So you think about what he's saying here. It's no small thing. He's saying that he is the only source of spiritual light. 
that all other religions, no matter what they are, all other systems, all other religions leave mankind in darkness because he didn't say I'm the light of heaven. He didn't say I am the light of angels. He says I am the light of the world. So without him, all men are sitting in chains of sin and darkness. I mean, literally, spiritually, they have no knowledge of the true God. John 12 Jesus said this, he said, he who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he said, and he who sees me sees him who sent me. And he says, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide or remain in darkness. That means if you don't believe, receive and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter who you are, where you live on this earth, you will be in darkness. You are in darkness. In Acts 26, 18, Jesus appeared to Paul as what? He appeared to him as a light from heaven. It said, brighter than the sun. And he told Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles when he did that. And here was his purpose. He says to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. In other words, He's got to send Paul out because the only light that was in the world was where? It was in Israel. It was only found there. Now, you could proselytize and become part of that, but it wasn't in the rest of the world and any of their religions and any of their gods. They're sitting, the whole world's sitting in darkness. And he said, Paul, I'm going to send you out to open their eyes, to turn them from this darkness that they're sitting in and turn them to light. In that darkness, when you're sitting in darkness, you're sitting, he says, in the power of Satan. And in the light, you have then the power of God. I mean, this is no small thing. The only way we have any knowledge of God is through the light that comes through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 4, 6 says, for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness and who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's only through Jesus you're going to know who he is. And that's the only way that light breaks through your darkness is through the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said this. I thought this was good. He said, Jesus' light of the world claim, it implies that Jesus is saying this. Listen to this. Darkness rules wherever I am not. Jesus is basically saying darkness rules wherever I am not. And whenever I am extinguished, no one sees anything. Jesus saying, you take me out, you take my light out, and nobody sees a thing. And I thought that was interesting and good because that's what I'm seeing happening. That is the goal of Satan in this world and especially in America right now. He's going to extinguish the word. And that's the only way we know who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And what happens when that happens? What happens when the word's gone? No one can see anything. Truth is gone. When you head into the tribulation, that's what this world becomes in a physical, literal, spiritual sense, darkness. Revelation 16, 10, one of the judgments, it says, then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness. That's what's going to be covered in this whole earth at that time. Darkness. Think of the countries that have banned Christians and Christianity. And there are some that they have it down to less than 1%. I 
I mean, it's just a barely flickering light. And you just look at them, look at their countenances. This is not a put down. Their countenances are dark. Their eyes are dark. Their clothes a lot of times are dark and their outlook is dark. It just is. They're promoting violence. It's just, there's no peace and joy there that you see. And it's not just the Middle Eastern countries. It's over in Europe. I talked to a guy that was a missionary in France and he said that was like the hardest place you could be. He said as far as the French people goes, he said you couldn't meet a nicer bunch of people. He said they treated me great. They'd have me over for bread, they'd have me over for wine, and as long as we were talking about bread and wine, they're all smiles. They're all happy. He said as soon as I'd bring up anything spiritual, anything about Christianity, he said it's like this veil would come down and their countenance would change and the conversation, that was the end of the conversation. They wanted nothing to do with it. This darkness that's there. And when my kids were over there on their trips or whatever, it's just the clothes they wear are dark. That's what they would come back and say. It's just a dark place. And that's kind of how it is. You take Jesus away from anything and that's what you're left with, isn't it? darkness. This is why Jesus, listen, this is a scripture to remember. He admonishes us in John 12. He says, a little while longer and the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. That's where we really need to appreciate the fact that we, we can get good books, we can read our Bibles, we can hear all kinds of teaching, we have all kinds of access to light. But the point is we have to walk in that light, not just hear it, see it, and all that, right? We have to walk in it while we have it, because there may come a time when we don't have it, is his point there. Because when you don't have light, it's a miserable existence. The other night I was in a hotel room and it was pitch black in that hotel room and two curtains drawn. It was dark as could be. And I had to get up to use the bathroom and I didn't want to wake my wife up. So I didn't turn the light on. I thought I knew where I was heading and I kept running into chairs and walls. And I mean, running into them like it hurt. I'm hitting them and groaning. And Lisa's not. She wasn't asleep, I guess, because she's like, are you all right? And I'm like, yeah, I just can't see where I'm going. I'm fine. (laughs) But I'm saying that's what happens when you're in total darkness. Or if you've been in the cave anywhere, there's caves around here. That is like an eerie feeling. But Jesus is saying spiritually, that's the way it is when he's taken out of the picture. It's a lamp to our feet so we can see where we're going in this dark world. We all know Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119 again, verse 130 says, the unfolding of thy words gives light. And it imparts understanding to the simple. Unfolding of thy words gives light. And it imparts understanding to the simple. That's how we can see where we need to go. It'll keep us out of danger, keep us out of apostasy. Because errors are darkness. And you get going down that path because you've not heeded the word or not given up. I mean, you can end up who knows where, right? When you can't see where you're going, that's what happens. You run into things, you stumble, you fall. And you could fall down a deep cavern if you were in a cave without a lamp. So only the light Jesus gives can do that. He's the only source of light for all. I like this. Matthew Henry said, the visible light of the world is the sun. And Christ is the son of righteousness. One sun enlightens the whole world. We have one sun that enlightens our whole world. So does one Christ. 
That's what he's saying. I am the light of the world. And Matthew Henry said, what a dungeon would the world be without the sun? No kidding. The thing we take for granted that it's going to be there every day, even when it's cloudy. What a dungeon the world would be without the sun. So would it be without Christ by whom light came into the world. Just think if we had never had Jesus, he had never come, never had his words, never had his life, never had his death, never had the light to reveal the heart of God to us. We would be in darkness. Look how miserable we'd be. Miserable. So he says he's the light of the world. But guess what the world is made up of? It's made up of individuals. And so he offers us help. This is what he's saying here in this verse as individuals. He says, I am the light of the world. But then he brings it down to us. He says, he or she, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And listen, in the Gospels, he talks about Everything we experience as individuals in principle, doesn't he, that we'll experience in this life, from money to ambition to how to relate to other people to death and the hereafter. That's the light he's given us. We can see how he dealt with every situation in principle. And for the situations we get it, and we have the, uh, the rest of the word too to help us, right, on that, it's all inspired by the Spirit of Christ. But he also promises he'll give us the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us to show us how to apply those principles. And in that sense, he's the light of the world. But he's not only the light, but it says there at the end, he says, but you can have the light of life. So in his light is life. And really, that is in reality what every person truly longs for in their heart. They want to have life, true life, real life. And Jesus says, I will give you the wisdom in my light. How to live that way, how to experience that real life. Because the real life sales pitch is what we're getting every day through all the different outlets. It's money, houses, clothes, cars. Come experience what life is all about. That's the sales pitch all this advertising's giving you. Even all the health stuff. They advertise drugs for everything you can imagine. It's like, man, you need to take drugs for all that stuff? But that's what it is. And they're saying, but we'll make your life better. That's what they're promising you. And Jesus says, no, I am the light that will give you the true life. He's saying there's a lot of false lights out there. He's saying life is not found in things or places, is it? He's saying it is found in a person, me, whoever follows me, he says. And so what he's telling us is, all everyone in here, this is his claim this is his beckoning he's saying just put your hand in mine i am the light of the world follow me discover that i am the light of life and he's saying you won't be disappointed that's a big promise he's making to us but i think he can fulfill it i think he has fulfilled it for a lot of us don't you he really has the last thing i want to talk about here for a few minutes is another attribute of light is what so it can guide our paths, it can give us life, he's saying. But also, what else does life do? The other attribute of life is that it exposes, doesn't it? And we have that in Ephesians 5.8. For you were once darkness, Paul says, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And he goes on to say, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of 
darkness, but rather, he says, expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. He says, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Things that are hidden in the dark are suddenly exposed when the light is turned on, isn't it? And when the light of Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, when it shines in the eyes of people, most don't like it. We were coming back from Columbus. It was a few years back. <laughs> I think I got most of this story right. But it was on a holiday. I think it was, the, I was asking Thomas about this. It's been a while back. It was on the 4th of July, and it was late. It was like 1 o'clock in the morning. And the state police had roadblocks up to catch drunk drivers. So we pulled up to that, and I'm looking back. I'm thinking, Thomas was just a little kid. He was probably about 10 years old. And there's Thomas in the back, not in a seat belt. He's asleep on the floor of our van. And I'm thinking they're going to pull us over. So he opens the sliding door. And he shines this flashlight back there, and he shines it right in Thomas's face, right in his eyes. And anybody that knows Thomas, I think this must have been the only time in his life he ever got mad and yelled. But he did. He yells at this state trooper. He didn't know who he was. Like, hey, stop that. Turn that flashlight off and get that light out of my eyes. And I'm sitting there thinking so much for grace. <laughs> Oh, man, Thomas, of all times, you're not only not in a seatbelt, you're yelling at this guy, you know? I'm just like, that is so out of character. I just... But anyways, I realized the trooper must have been a dad, too, because he just slid the door like he hadn't seen anything and told us to have a nice night. <laughs> but the point is, most of us don't like to have light, the light of the Lord Jesus Christ shining in our face or our life. And why is that? Because what I'm saying, it exposes us. It'll expose us, and I want to talk about two ways. And we'll talk about this a little more other than today, but I do want to get started on it today. And it can expose both the legalist and the antinomian. The antinomian is the one who thinks grace gives him a license to sin, and the other one is one who thinks he earns his grace. And that's the context, really, of this verse 12, because we looked at it the other time we were in John 8, verses 1 to 11, about the story of the woman caught in adultery and the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why I believe it's placed where it is, brought both the hearts of the Pharisee and this, the life of this woman, how? Into broad daylight, so to speak, into light. The Pharisees thought that they had lived a life that earned God's grace. And they thought they're favored. God favors us because we do not outwardly transgress the law. And that gives us the right to sit on other people as judges. But the light of Jesus's word did what? It exposed their hypocrisy because he confronted them. The light came on. He said, he that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And bam, all of a sudden, they're exposed. The light has exposed them. His eyes, looking at him, we talked about that. His purity, his words, he that is without sin, all of that brought their sin to light. And the one who said, I am the light of the world, exposed what was hidden by a cloak of self-righteousness. They had a cloak of self-righteousness on covering all that. And he just ripped that off through his light, right? And they didn't like it, did they? And people generally don't like that, even though... He wasn't doing it to kill him or crush him. 
that was really grace in their lives. That hypocrisy has got to be exposed. But they didn't like it and they plot to kill him. But the woman was exposed to her lifestyle because it's just like we read in Ephesians where it says, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. So both were exposed by the light of the world, the self-righteous legalist and the one who thinks he can do what he pleases and still be right with God. Both of them are exposed by the light. And so the answer for both people in both situations is what? It's grace. And grace is found in the light. Because both problems, we'll be talking about this, both of them have a misunderstanding of what grace is. And the problem goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This legalism, antinomianism, it has the same root. Now this is interesting. Somebody pointed this out. I had never looked at it this way. God didn't just issue a thing saying, here's all the trees, do what you want with them. He issued a command. Go back and read it. It's in Genesis 2.16. It says, and the Lord commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He commanded them not just don't eat of that tree, but he commanded them eat of all these other trees. It's a command. Freely. They're all given to you. So he'd given them, think about it, he'd given them a world of good things to enjoy. I mean, there is an overabundance of trees to enjoy, more than enough to satisfy them. That's an understatement. And to give them joy. Believe me, there was plenty there. So he only asked one thing, that they show their love for him one tree by refusing to eat the fruit of one tree. And like somebody said, he didn't make that tree some gnarly, nasty looking thing, did he? Because everything God made was good. It would have been a good looking tree, but so were all the other ones. He said that one there, I don't want you to eat any of the fruit. I just want you to obey me and trust me and trust that whatever I command you is for your good. That's all he asked. He gave them more than enough to satisfy their needs. You can carry that over into marriage. He gives you a wife more than enough to satisfy your needs. And he's saying, she's the one. And the rest of them, you got to leave alone. That's, I'm telling you, it's not like you can't be satisfied. You can be. And yet the devil, the temptation is he's restricting you. He's confining you. Look at all the fruit out there that you should be allowed to enjoy. And God says, no, just stick to the one I gave you. And you'll be more than happy, more than satisfied. And that's the way it works. Here's the lie. It's a twofold lie that Satan told them. He's telling them about the Lord. He's painting a picture in their mind about the Lord that the Father, the Father, God, was restrictive and selfish since they couldn't eat from all of the trees. That's the first picture he's painting. And the other was his word can't be trusted. Because he says, when you eat the fruit of that, you'll die. And he says, you won't die. You can't trust his word. Here's the lie of the devil. He's telling them that God isn't generous and his word couldn't be trusted. Not a generous God and he doesn't have any integrity, that he is a liar. And the gospel, though, the gospel that we hear, the truth of the gospel, is designed to expose that lie because the gospel brings out God's true character to light. Jesus says, 
I am the light of the world. And he's saying that I came here to shine forth the love of God. Because here's what we see in the gospel. The devil is trying to tell us, and he tells all the world this, that God's not generous and that he's restrictive. And the gospel said he is overly generous. He's given us everything he has. He's given us his most precious possession freely. Gave us his only beloved son. And the devil's going to say he's not generous. And the world is going to convince us that he's restrictive. And he's given his spirit to live within us. To write his law in our hearts to motivate us to do what's right. To give us a new nature. He's done everything he can. Just the opposite. But here's what I want to say. For groups like ours, I don't know, it's heading both ways. But we've got to be careful. Both avenues, antinomianism and legalism, are traps that you can easily fall into. And like the Pharisees. But here's how the Pharisees were. And we can be this way. We can fall into this trap because we're like them in a lot of ways. They believed in the holiness of God. They believed in his law. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in predestination and election. And believe it or not, they also believed in grace. It was just distorted and twisted. And the reason we know that, they thought they, God had shined his grace on them. When the Pharisees praying in Luke 18, he says this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm different. Even this adulterous woman, I'm not like this adulterous woman, they would have said. You've made a difference in me. And he's saying the reason you've chosen me is because of what I've done. And then he starts naming all the things. I thank you, God, you made a difference because I've fasted, I've tithed. And I pray like no other. Trouble is, they didn't believe God's grace was freely given. How did they think they obtained his grace? They believed they earned it. And we can easily fall in that snare. And so when the light of Jesus was shown on the Pharisees, bringing and condemning that woman caught in the very act of adultery, he exposed them for being the bankrupt sinners they were. All of their working for righteousness, all of their earning it, when he exposed their hearts, he left them what? He showed them really, though, all of what you've done, you're still corrupt, bankrupt, and you're guilty. And their consciences told him that. But it only happened through his light. It's only by the light that that legalism could be exposed. And here's what they were. Maybe this will help you understand. They were the elder brother. So what was the elder brother's problem? Is he's living there. He's, he never left the farm, but he could never enjoy the father's graciousness because he's always feeling like he has to earn it. And he thought his father was a, just a demanding taskmaster. He obeyed, but not out of love but strictly from duty and drudgery. And why was that? It's because he separated the father's commands from the father, separated the father from his law. And that's what creates a legalist. There's this one theologian, his name's Gerhardus Voss. He made this statement. Legalism is a peculiar kind of submission to God's law. Peculiar kind of submission to God's law. Something that no longer feels the personal divine touch in the rule it submits to. Can you hear what that's saying? So it's not saying there's anything wrong with the law. There's anything wrong with living a holy life. That is not the point. The point is it's being submitted to, but without submitting to the Lord himself. It's this law that's separated from him like something you would put on a wall in a schoolroom. You shall not chew gum. 
so to speak. Let me read this again. Legalism is a peculiar kind of submission to God's law, something that no longer feels the personal divine touch in the rule it submits to. Maybe this will help you. Sinclair Ferguson, another theologian, wrote this. Legalism is simply separating the law of God from the person of God. Eve sees God's law, but she has lost sight of the true God himself, thus abstracting or separating his law from his loving and generous person. God becomes a magnified policeman who gives his law only because he wants to deprive us and in particular to destroy our joy. The lie that we now believe is that to glorify God is not indeed and cannot be to enjoy him forever, but to lose all joy. Is that making sense? The legalist is saying, I've got to do this, but I'm not doing it because I have a heart for the Lord or I'm serving him or I'm obeying his voice. I'm just doing this because this is what I have to do to earn salvation. He separated what he's doing from the Lord himself. There's no relationship there. And that was the trouble with that older brother and his dad. The antinomian appears to be just the opposite of the legalist because antinomian, anti means against and nomos means the law. And the antinomian will say this, God accepts me the way I am. I've heard this many times in many different places. He accepts me the way I am because grace is unconditional. So I'm not going to get bound up by a bunch of rules and regulations. My God is not like you. He's gracious and accepts me the way I am. So I'm going to be the way I am. Have you ever heard that? I've heard that several times. It seems in a sense like the person's rejected God's law, but the real problem with both cases is it's a misunderstanding of grace and a misunderstanding of God himself. Because it is true, it's true that grace is unconditional. We come to God, as the song says, just as I am. You don't clean yourself up and then make yourself good enough to come to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that. But it's misleading to say that God accepts us the way we are. He only accepts us, why? Because we are in Christ and for his sake. So it would be better to say God accepts us, not because of the way we are, but he accepts us despite the way we are. And he's going to change us when we come to him. So he doesn't leave us the way we are, but he does what? conforms us into his image. That's a true understanding of what grace is. Yeah, he accepts me the way I am, despite the way I am. But when when I come to him, the goal is I am going to change you. I am not leaving you the way you are. You cannot continue in sin, as Paul says in Romans chapter six. If all this is too much, it might be too much. I don't know. But a true understanding of grace What grace really is, is the answer to both the legalist and the person that feels like they can do whatever they want to do. Paul is a prime example of a legalist that found the light of grace. Because in Philippians 3, he talks about all the accomplishments, all the things he had done, he trusted in to give him God's grace. He said he was circumcised the eighth day. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Chosen, he's saying. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. The chosen race is what he's saying. I've had grace. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law. Paul said, I am blameless. Paul had this mistaken notion that God loved him because of who he was and what he had made himself to be. 
That's why he thought God loved him. And then what happens is he encounters the light of God, didn't he? And it exposed his legalistic, self-righteous spirit that was in him. And the first encounter he had with the light of God was through whom? Stephen, the martyr. And he realizes, here's somebody here. He knows the word better than me. He can speak in the power of the spirit and affect people, which I can't. And also, he knows this risen Lord Jesus Christ, knows him personally and can pray for sinners to be forgiven. Paul's like, I can't do any of that. We're called, we are to be the light of the world, aren't we? Isn't that what Jesus said? And Stephen's doing that. The Spirit of God, through him, it's beginning to expose Paul and his heart to himself. And the second counter he has is with the light of the world himself on the way to Damascus. Sends him on his face. The light of the Lord Jesus Christ, a light from heaven, brighter, it says, than the sun. And Paul went blind, but he was actually beginning to see. Grace was really open in his eyes. And in that light, all of that light that came his way, the grace that was in there, that had to be a hard pill to swallow for Paul. Had to give up everything he'd been working for in his whole life. But it showed that his accomplishments and his self-righteousness were shown to be what they really were. And what did he say they were? He said they're just dung. Paul was obeying the law, wasn't he, before that? They were like, there's no obedience. But it wasn't from the right motivation and the right spirit and in the right way, was it? So he's got a totally different outlook on his obedience. Because from here on out, he obeyed, but from a different motive, from grace, because now he had a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That changes everything. That is the key. And we haven't turned to a verse, so we need to turn to at least one verse to make this an official meeting. So if you would just turn to Philippians 3, and we'll begin looking in verse 7. And basically we'll read what I just talked about. But let's read this. Let's look what Paul's saying here. Thinking about what we're talking about. He says in verse 7, but what things were gained to me? He says, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish. Why? That I may gain Christ and be found in him. He says, not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God. That full righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And he says that I may know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul is through by grace with all of himself, with all of his deeds, all of his accomplishments. He's saying all I want to do is know him the light of the world, because in him, the light of the world, if I follow him, I have everything I was after before. All the rest of that is worthless now. That's really what Paul is saying there. So what we need to see is grace is not a substance. It's not something that gets injected into you, is it? Grace is a person. Grace is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says that in John chapter 1, verse 17, it says the law was given through Moses but it says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth come to us through a person, Jesus. And so we're back to Jesus didn't say come to a message, come to a system, 
did he? He said, come unto me. It's all found in a person. And then the expression gets worn out, but it's still true in a personal relationship. He told the Pharisees, he said, you study the scriptures thoroughly because you think in them you possess eternal life. They think all this knowledge of the scriptures, all this outward obedience. He's saying, you study them thoroughly just to make yourselves something, but it's apart from me. But he tells them, but it is these same scriptures that testify about me, is what the Lord said. So we go to the word looking for him, to obey him, to walk with him. It's him. That's where grace is found. That's the point. Because the woman that was caught in adultery, she experienced grace because she stayed with him in the light. Because the light of Jesus did what when she's sitting there? It exposed her sickness, her sin, in a sense, her wound. But that same light also did what? It brought healing and grace to her, didn't it? As he tells her, woman, after they all left, where are those accusers of yours? Where are they? The light had driven them away. They wanted nothing to do with him, the light. They walked away from him. He says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she's still there abiding under the light. And she looks at him and she says, no one, Lord, there's no one left to condemn me. And so here comes grace in all of its forms. She got to hear it. They didn't. They'd left. They could have heard the same thing she heard. But he tells them, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. There's grace because grace gives her free forgiveness, didn't it? There was nothing she could do. Nothing she could do at that point, was it? He said, I've freely forgiven you. She couldn't earn it. She couldn't do anything for it. She couldn't say she fasted, tithed, or prayed to get it. He just gave it to her freely, didn't he? That is grace. Came as she was. But grace also came in the other form. It gave the command and with that the power to no longer live in sin. That was grace too. Not continue as you have been doing but go and sin no more. So in that command, with the forgiveness, and in that command is the grace and the power to live that way, to live the Christian life. That's where it's at. The key to all of this is, though, how did she hear all that? It came from the lips of the Lord Jesus. Grace wasn't an impersonal substance, was it? Something you just sing about. Grace was personal loving and empowering, wasn't it, in her life? Because she left because of that, coming from the, his lips, this personal encounter. She left here with a heart of love and obedience that could only come from that personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't an impersonal thing at all, was it? So her obedience from here on out was going to be personal. And I'm saying obedience for this woman was not bondage but freedom because she understood the grace of God and experienced it through the Lord Jesus Christ. The light of Jesus opened her eyes to the loving generosity of the grace of God and that is the springboard to obedience. Amen? Yeah, I read this story, this little boy's riding his tricycle. He's just riding it like crazy. He's going around the block and he just keeps going around and around and over and over again around the block. And finally, this policeman sees him doing that and stops, him, stops and asks him. He says, why are you doing that? Why do you keep going around and around and around? 
And the boy tells him, he says, well, I'm running away from home. And the policeman asks, why do you keep going around the block? And the boy says, because my mom said I'm not allowed to cross the street. <laughs> Here's the point of sharing that. The point is clear. Obedience will keep you close to the one you love. Amen. Amen. Obedience will keep you close to the one you love. <laughs> You're running away from home. Hmm. I did that once. I didn't get very far. Twice I did it, I think, actually. Didn't get very far. Like I said, you study the scriptures thoroughly, you think you have eternal life. But he's saying, they are those that speak of me. So obedience brings you back to the one you love. The prodigal son had left his father, but it says he came to his senses and he thought, I thought that my father, here's where he didn't understand God. We're saying that's the problem with both the person that is lawless and the person that is a legalist. He says, I thought my father was a hard, restrictive man. And he's thinking to himself, I wanted my freedom when he came to himself. But all it's done, he's saying, all this freedom has done to me is bring me to ruin. I'll go back to him because I know my father was a fair, honest, and he seemed to want what was the best for me. And I know he won't turn me out. He's starting to realize this impression, the lies, the ideas that the devil had put in his mind about his father were never true from the beginning. And that's what the gospel tells us. God has never been our enemy, never been against us, never been stingy, never been restrictive in any sense. He's always been more than generous and wanting the best for us. And he knows what is the best for us. And he, the, the boy, though, he still hadn't gotten totally delivered because he had his speech worked out. And he's like, at the end of it, he's going to say, just make me one of your slaves, one of your hired hands. But he still didn't understand God and his free graciousness yet, did he? Until he got back. And he starts to give his speech, and the father cuts him off before he gets to that point. And he's like, no, 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 you're my son. Get the best room. Get everything. You're not going to be a second-class citizen, and that's the way it is with us. He came back to the farm, and he still would have had his duties to do, wouldn't he? He still would have had to work, do his part on the farm. But I guarantee you, just like with Paul, he would have had a totally different outlook and a totally different attitude because he had encountered the embrace of grace. And that's what we all need if we haven't encountered that yet. And like I said, it's easy to slide off into either side of that, isn't it? We do it all the time, and we've got to get brought back. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for the word that you've given us here. And I just ask you, Lord, that your light will shine in all of our hearts and all of our minds, Lord, and, and that you can help us to see you for who you really are, Lord, your generosity, that you're not restrictive, that you are a generous God, a good God, and that all the commands you've given us are not burdensome, but they're for our good. And I ask you, Lord, that your grace and mercy will be on all of us here to help us to walk in the light as you are in the light while we have the light. And I thank you that you'll do that for us here as a church. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.